So you may have noticed during worship that the camera zoomed in on John at one point. I was seated down here. I had my eyes closed, and I was praying, and Pam leaned over and said, Is that your head? And I looked up on the screen, and I said, No, that is a monk. Because all they caught was right here. A big screen sometimes can be, uh, can be intimidating. I have a friend in this, in this church um, who is a doctor. He's a dermatologist, and, and this has never happened before, and it's not happened since, but it was one Sunday after worship. I went back, and I was spending some time talking with him, and he said, he said you know, while you were preaching, uh, I, I, I grasped, so I, I, there's something I, I needed to tell you about. And I thought, well, wh- what is the spiritual truth he got a hold of? He said, while you were speaking and I was looking at the big screen, I saw a spot on your face and I need you to come in the office. I need to check it out. (laughs) See, while I preach, some people text, some people sleep. I have a friend who checks out my skin. (laughs) So I did, I went in and he checked and there was nothing there, but he did find a spot right here on my torso. And so he he said, I I need to check this out. So I said, well, well, look at it. He said, no, I, I need to cut it out. I said, like now? He said, well, with a, with a knife? And he said, well, I'll, I'll numb that with that needle. And so he did. He cut it out, and he, and he sent it in, and he called me later and said, there's, there's, there's no issue there. You're, you're fine. Now, see, I could have said to him from that point on, don't ever, ever tell me anything like that again. I could have said to him, whatever your diagnosis is, I want to ignore that. I just, I just don't want to deal with it. The truth of the matter is that that I would act that way, it would not necessarily mean I'm healthy. In fact, it could very well mean that I'm ignorantly sick. I walked into a gathering of thousands of leaders of of communities of faith. And I was late getting into the meeting, and I didn't realize that the person who was the keynote speaker was Rick Warren, pastor of Saddleback Community Church and the author of The Purpose Driven Life. And I got in late, and when I walked in, the first thing I heard him say was simply this. Our goal is not attendance. It is health. It is balance. What is healthy? That is our focus. Would you join us on this journey? I have friends who periodically say to me, so, yeah, you're at Erie first, and so who, who are you guys? What, what do you do? What, 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 is, what is that? I heard somebody this, somebody this morning just told me that they ran into somebody who said that they had heard, and a friend was asking him, is it true that you have to pay $1,500 to become a member at this church? The answer is no, it's 2000 <laughs> No. See, this church has been known in the past for the big church on the hill and its Christmas musicals and its Easter musicals. This church has been known in the past by its Sunday morning television program, Fully Alive. But we don't do that anymore. So do we no longer exist? Do we no longer have an identity? I want to propose to you this morning that our identity is this. Who we are is what is left after what we do is removed. Who we are 
is what is left after what we do is removed. And this is really who we are. We are simply this. We are a community. Look around at each other. Just go ahead and look. Smile at each other. Community. Who reveal Jesus. Personally, as we encounter Jesus individually, as we deal with each other here in relationship, and as we deal with the community that surrounds us. And how well we reveal Jesus depends on how healthy our relationships are. A teacher came to Jesus and said to him, how can I get this life that God had designed from the very beginning? He called it eternal life, but it really means healthy living. And Jesus said back to him, well, what do the Holy Scriptures say? And so the teacher responded this way. Luke records it. It's recorded in Luke 10. And it says this, The man answered, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him. Do this, and you will what? You'll live. Do this, and you will have this healthy living. Not to do this means to be sick. To not understand this is to be ignorantly unhealthy. Jesus says, here is the health, and this is you. And until you are this, you are not healthy. Jesus doesn't do that as, as my friend didn't come to me because he was mean or he wanted to scare me or because he's sadistic, he wants to cut on somebody this week. Jesus is not saying this because he's mean, he's sadistic, he wants to cut into your life, into your joy, into who you are. It's simply because he cares enough that he wants us to be healthy. And so I want you to join me on a journey, because we're going to journey for these next seven weeks, into health, the way that God describes it. We are going to, to personally have an encounter with Jesus as he says to us directly four things, and we're going to study each of these every week. He's going to affirm us, and, and I don't know about you, but I need affirmation a lot. We all need to know, why are we doing all right? Because he'll, affor- he'll affirm us. He'll also diagnose us, and then he'll correct us, if you will. He'll heal us, and then he'll give us a motivational promise to say, keep going, stay healthy, because here's the reason why. Eschatology is the study of end things. Our sense of the end impinges on what we presently do. What I think will be the end determines how I act at this moment. And if if we are to reveal Jesus, then we must have an understanding of what he has already revealed to us. And Jesus has revealed some of those things that we should look for that will be the ending of the world as we know it. In fact, it's listed by one of Jesus' followers who had a vision And that vision now we call the book of Revelation. Now, it's interesting that as Jesus describes what the ending will be for us, he begins by first addressing seven communities of faith, seven churches. 
And his address to them is not only to tell them what's going to happen, but to prep them for the ending and make them healthy so they are ready to walk through the ending. He says, here's the deal. Here's what your future is going to be. Here's your destiny. But I need you to be healthy. And this is what you've got to do to be healthy. And so he begins by saying this to the first church, a church in a place called Ephesus. Revelation 2 verse 2 says this. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, and the word angel there means messenger, or, and we really believe to the pastor, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. Jesus begins with an affirmation, and this is the affirmation. He says, I know you're trying. There's our affirmation. I know you're giving it your best shot. I know you're trying at this. When he says... The the seven candlesticks, understand that that represents the seven communities of faith, the seven churches. These are the company of saints who still act a whole lot like sinners. They are not perfect. And whose identity is not found in their perfectionism, nor is it found in what they are doing. But their identity is found in the one who walks among them. And he describes himself respectively to each of those seven churches by telling them who they are identified with. And these are the phrases that he uses. Him who holds the seven stars in his hands, the first and the last, who died and came to life. Him who has the sharp two-edged sword, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are burnished bronze, who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. The church's identity is not found in their perfectionism. The church's identity is not found in what they do or how well they do it. Their identity is found in he who walks among them, the one who holds the seven stars in his hand. His name is Jesus Christ. And the church has being only in relationship and in relation to Christ. Because if you take any place that calls themselves a community of faith and you strip away what they do, if you cannot find Jesus walking among them, they are not the church. He is not some micromanaging perfectionist father who becomes incensed when you drop the pass in the end zone, when you didn't fold the towels just correctly, when you left the porch light on all night long. He is not that kind of a father. Ephesus, where this letter was going, is an incredible city. It was called the Supreme Metropolis of Asia. It is where the trade routes would connect. A great seaport and and the major roads of, of that time intersected in this place. 
It was a great cosmopolitan gathering places where many nations would gather, bringing many gods and many religions. Its commerce was, was intense and, and immense. And their focus of worship was on Diana, the goddess of fertility, in her great temple with all the temple prostitutes. Endeavoring to declare Jesus in Lord, is Lord in that place was incredibly difficult. And Jesus says to these friends in Ephesus, I pulled you together, you who are just people, and I blew on you my Holy Spirit and infused you. And because of that, in that place, no matter how difficult it has become, you have lived out right action. You have discerned what is evil. And in resisting it, you have not given up. You have not worn out. And for that, I applaud you. Wherever his believers gather, Jesus celebrates his church. In its imperfections, See, I meet people all the time who say, I don't, I don't go to organized church. I don't go where there's gathering of those people because they are, they're, they're hypocrites or, or they don't do what they're supposed to do and, and they're just so imperfect. And I got to tell you, you're absolutely right. But if Jesus celebrates those groups, shouldn't we? See, you understand when he called out Ephesus, this was not the varsity squad. This gathering of people was just a geographical identification. He just said, there's a group. He could have said, I'm writing to the people who gather in New York City. I'm writing to the people who gather in Des Moines, Iowa. I'm gathering to the people, I'm writing to the people who are gathering in Toadsuck, Arkansas. You say there's a place? There is a place. Toadsuck, Arkansas. And if you ever go by there, bring me a hat. I'd like to wear it. He said, I'm writing to you. You're, you're, you're not the perfectionist. You're, you are, you're, you're just people who are struggling to make this thing happen. You are not special because you're perfectionist. You're not special because you do all the right things. You are special because he who holds the seven stars in his hand walks among you. And in so many ways, you're still broken and you're still breaking. But if you let me in there, I will give you revelation that will heal you. And so he comes to those people and he says, here, let me reveal a diagnosis. And here's the diagnosis. We are broken. We are breaking. There is this instrument called the Jahari window. It's a study of the human personality. You see the four-paned window there. It really gives us the four dimensions of our identity. So, so we, we come to the first one, and you see it there, the open free area. That is what people know about you, and you know about you. Sarah, what do you know about Jason that you can tell us? <laughs> Just what do you know about him? Anything. He's a man. Yeah, we all know that. You know that. He knows anything else. Just... He has hobbies. His, just, he likes martial arts. Did you know that about yourself? You did. Okay, so that's what people know about you and you know about you, and that's where we live most of our public life is right there. 
The second one is called the blind area. This is what somebody knows about you, but you don't know about you. Blind spots. Years ago, somebody came up to me and said, and he was a good friend, so I let him, you know, he could say this to me. He said, you know, in these last couple months, you seem rather defensive. I said, I do not. (laughs) What do you mean? I didn't see it. It's a blind spot. Number three, the hidden area. That is what people don't know about you, but you know about you. That hidden sin, that aspiration, that dream, that hidden goal. Nobody knows it, but you know it. Number four is the unknown area. That's what people don't know about you, and you don't know about you. Don't get ahead of me. (laughs) Our true identity, our true identity is the collection of those things that are invisible to everybody else except our Creator. So, Jesus sees Cephas, the reed, the wishy-washy dude. And Jesus says to him, I'm calling you Peter, meaning the rock, because there's a steadiness in you that you don't see and nobody else sees, but I see it. He also says to Peter a little bit later, nobody sees this and you don't see it, but I see a place in you that Satan has rooted himself. Get behind me, Satan. Because I see that fault in you. Until we see ourselves through the eyes of Jesus, we will never get a vision of what we can become. God knows us better than we know ourselves. And for that reason, he then says to us into this church in Ephesus, Revelation 2.4, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. That word forsaken means not that you rebelled, but you just neglected. You just walked away. See, we spend most of our times in that public quadrant of our identity. What I know about me and what you know about me. And I just want to make sure I do the right things and you see the right things and, and I feel good about that and, and, and that's my reputation and, and it's good. We spend a whole lot of energy in the other quadrant of of that which is hidden. Because you don't know this about me, but I know it, and therefore I don't want you to know some of these things, so I have to carry this facade, and I work really hard at making sure you think I'm doing the right things when I know down in here they may not be necessarily true, but I just want you to see this image. And so I work really hard, and that's where we spend most of our time. But it's this, this quadrant down here, the unknown quadrant, that I really don't want to go into because, first of all, I'm not sure I want to know that about me. And I sure don't want you to know that about me. And I'm not sure what God would do about me if we really discussed what was down in there. And so what happens is that I try to live life in these upper quadrants of my identity when my true identity is here, and those things that, that, that I don't want to deal with begin to just infiltrate every other part of my life. And you know what happens because you'll say, man, I don't know why I feel this way. God does. 
I don't know, I don't know why I blew up. I don't know why those words came out. God does. Why do I act this way? I don't want to act this way. Why? Well, God knows. And what eventually happens to us is that as we continue with these things, these, these things infiltrating our lives, we start to break apart. And we try to cover the facade and we try to do the right things and it's still cracking and crumbling because we know there's things wrong and we don't know how to deal with them. We're not even sure what they are, but they're just they're crumbling in lives and we get to the place that we're driven to health. We've got to find our health. And we get to the spot that the psalmist called a broken and a contrite heart because now I'm busted apart. What do I do with that? And at that moment, then we can hear Jesus say to us, you have neglected your first love. First love. See, I don't, I don't get that first love thing because if, if I could just think back, my first love probably was my mom. I love my mama. Don't say anything bad about my mama. I love my mama. I'm my daddy. And probably Janet Jones in the sixth grade. I fought for Janet Jones in the sixth grade. I love Janet Jones. And Janet, if you're out there, I think you're cool. We did the Freddy together. It was great. Some of you say, what's the Freddy? Well, sorry. How many remember the Freddy? I'm not going to do it, but Scott, well, Scott, where are you? (laughs) See, first love is not chronology. It's origination. He loved me first perfectly. And Jesus said, I want you to come back to that place that loves you first perfectly and park yourself there. He's the only one who knows me in this identity quadrant and the only one, therefore, who can heal me of what is broken there. Ignore God and we become strangers to ourselves and to our own brokenness. I appreciate the words of Mark Batterson who says it well. Our potential for sin is exceeded only by our potential for self-deception. I have a friend whose husband came to her and said, I want a divorce. Now, Pam and I were aware of what this couple were going through, and, and we were pretty sure that if the, if the divorce goes through, it's really 90% his fault. Everybody's got problems in it, but we're pretty sure it's 90% his fault. So she said, we said, what are you going to do? And she says, well... I'm going to go away for a week and I'm just going to try to get really close to Jesus. Okay. So she goes away for a week and presses in and lets go of all other activity and just gets quiet. Because when you get quiet is when God begins to take us down into that unknown quadrant. And we really fight it we just because we don't want to be quiet because we're afraid of what we're going to hear. And if we never hear it, we never get healed from it. That's why, that's why the discipline of solitude is so vitally important in our lives. You are so stinking busy. I can call you and we can't get an appointment with each other for about five weeks because we've got all the stuff and if we're so busy, we're never going to get to that quadrant and we're never going to know what's down there and be healed from it. 
After she spent a week, she sent a letter to her husband and asked forgiveness because she had never seen her way, herself that way before. And she said, I've got to be healed from who I am. Will you forgive me? It so stirred him that he came back home and said, I got to do the same thing. And I can tell you now, months later, they love each other more because they learned how to love Jesus more. How? This is where Jesus brings us to the correction. He brings us to the healing, and he simply says this, remember, repent, and redo. Folks, it's it's just not rocket science. It's difficult to do, but it's simple to understand. Jesus says, remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Well, what were those first things? Let me take you back. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love with all your heart. What does that mean, with all our heart? It means this, with our first passion. With all our heart is that first passion. Jesus said, if you want to know where your heart will be, go look where your treasure is. For where your treasure is, so shall your heart be. Where your passion goes, your heart follows. So let me just ask you, do you remember when you came to an understanding that Jesus forgave you for all your sins? Do you remember the relief and the joy you felt? Remember those? Do you remember when you started understanding worship and some of you would tell me that you sat where the, when the worship team was playing and tears would just flow from your eyes and it was like a cleansing taking place and you're not even sure why you're crying, but it was just this thing happening and it's such a joy. And you couldn't, you couldn't wait to gather with others who had like belief and encourage each other. You say, oh, that was great, that was great, but that was just you know, kind of a rookie passion and now I've got reality of life. No, you've lost your first love. You still should have that intense passion. He says, repent, go back to the spot where you were before and redo that. So even if it's just an act of the will, say, I will give you thanks every day for the forgiveness of my sins. How can I be so callous not to understand that you gave me life when I should have died? I give you thanks. The feelings will follow. I'm going to go gather with, with those, those band of brothers on Wednesday night and just say, I've got to hang with these guys because I remembered how important that was and I'm getting so busy that I haven't taken time. I've got to show up there and I've got to connect with those guys and war together and live together because I used to do that. Where's your first passion? And understand, he's not saying to come back and love me less way, you can choose one of the four of the heart, the soul, the mind, and the strength. You've you got to have all four. He said, I want you to love me with all your soul, which I interpret this way, with my last breath. That word soul actually means breath. It means that I am so connected to Jesus that I realize that my living is connected to him, so I'm breathing him. I'm breathing in him, and, 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 and anything that's not him is a facade, and you can't breathe in a facade. 
and things start breaking down. See, there's some of you in here that have had multiple, multiple intimacies and multiple partners, and you think that's going to bring you intimacy, and you're, you're just choking. You keep choking and choking because you're not breathing life. Some of you just keep shopping and shopping and shopping, and if I have one more thing, one more dress, one more, one more boat, one more car, one more house, one more, one more, one more, I'll be okay, and you're choking because you're not breathing life. Do you remember the picture, one of the pictures, and we'll show it here in a moment, when, when the Twin Towers came crashing down one by one and that, that, that poisonous, billowy cloud just swept through Manhattan. And people are trying to get out of the way. They're choking. They're covering their mouths. They've got to get breath. They're dusting off all that carcinogenic junk and poison and just what's left of people, and they're, they're, they're trying to get rid of it, and they just, they just want to breathe. When your life's crumbling around you, you've got to go find some place to breathe. Let me tell you where I find that and why. I find it in what you did this morning here in worship. Because the scripture says that he inhabits the praises of his people. So God is here. So when I'm worshiping, whether I recognize it or not, I'm breathing in him. I got life. I'll pop on a, a, a CD in my car, and I'll just and I'll start just bellowing with it down the highway because I'm breathing in stuff, God's stuff, heaven's stuff. I take the holy scriptures, and I read them. You know why I do that? Because it says they were God breathed, so I breathe that. If you if, if you just if you take a little promise thing every morning and say, okay, that's my scripture for the day, then you've taken one short breath for the day. What's what are you gonna do the rest of the day? David, the psalmist said. I meditate on it day and night, and I flourish where I am because I'm breathing it in. I pray. I gather with folks at 9 o'clock on Sunday morning for first day prayer. Why? Because here's, here's what the Scripture says, that the Holy Spirit helps us pray. And you know what the word spirit actually means? Breath. So when I'm praying, and I'm praying with you, I am breathing in God's stuff. And I obey. Because when I obey, the scripture tells me, Jesus said, if you love me, then you'll keep my words. And so what I'm doing is I'm breathing in and breathing out love. I got to do that. See, please hear me. This is not religion. This is not a structure that we have to keep and sometimes we miss. This is a life that will go on forever. But he said, you got to come back to your first love. He said, I want you to love me with all your mind. I call that every thought. This is finding Jesus in every place. Since my junior year in college, Pam and I have been best friends. And I got to marry my best friend. I have studied her now for, we've been married 35 years, and for 37 years I've studied her. When I first met her, I really studied her. But as we've grown together, I, I, I know her. I know her thoughts. I know her movements and her actions. And in our house, I can walk in and tell you there's Pam because there's just Pam's stuff. It's, I can walk in and say those are Pam's colors. The way she decorates is so uniquely beautiful. It's just, I say those are Pam's colors. I can never do that. Just, I call it being Pammyized. It's just Pammy there. 
I can tell you that as soon as it starts to get crisp in the air, she's pulling all the fall decorations out and putting them all over the place. I said, so uh, Christmas stuff going up Thanksgiving week? She said, before. Because I, I know her. I know how she wants the pillows on the bed. Because they're just pammy weighted, and when they're in the when they're they're in the pillowcase, you can't have the extra bit of the pillowcase sticking out. You got to fold it back under so that it looks really tight. She's a drill sergeant. I'm telling you, it's horrible, and because I just know that's what she wants. I know her fragrance. So when I walk through the house, I go, "Oh, there's Pam. There's Pam. Oh, there's Pam's there. Pam's there. Pam. 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 Pam." So. He says, I want, you to, I want you to love me with your whole mind. The word is deep thoughts. I want you to take the scriptures and I want you to study them so that you study who God is. I want you to understand him and then lay it as a matrix over the world so that when you walk around this world, which is the house he created for us, as you walk around, you can say, oh, there's God. Oh, there's God. Oh, there's God. So that when you're in crisis, you don't say, where's God? You say, oh, there's God. When you get your promotion, you don't say, well, that's great. You go, no, no, there's God. When your child is sick and you don't know what to do, you can still take the scriptures in the presence of God and say, oh, there's God. Someone once said that, that, that we have this wonderful simplicity about us in the, in the Holy Scriptures and with God, this whole, the simplicity, but we, we take simplicity on the wrong side of complexity because God is so complex. And our simplicity on this side of complexity is, oh, this is who God is, and we understand what we should believe, but we don't understand why. So when things get tough and we start through the complexities, we go, oh, he's not around. But when I study him, I can go through complexity so that I'm on the other side of complexity so that when I'm in a tough trial, I can still have joy. When I'm losing hope, I can still have faith because I see him. See, we... we we give up our faith in God because we don't know him. He said, I want you to use your brain and study the scriptures and I will reveal myself to you. He said, love me with all your strength. Complete energy. Not just the leftover thing. Okay, Jesus, I'll give you a couple minutes before I fall asleep. It's just I'm driven. I get up in the morning and say, I want to discover you. I want to find you. I want to uncover your accuracy. I want to enjoy your mystery. I want to embrace your majesty. Do you know that statistics now say 61% of people, children who are raised in the church will leave their faith when they go to college? 61%. And you go, oh, God, help this generation. No, no, no. We should say, oh, God, help the church. Because you can ask them, why? And they'll tell you. I see all the stuff you do, but I don't see Jesus. Because when you take away the stuff, your identity is what's left over. See, Jesus said this. Revelation 2, if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. 
It simply means this. If you don't return back to your first love and love him with all your heart and your soul and your strength and your mind and, 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 and embrace and, and, and be enraptured by him, if you don't do that, then I will remove my light from you so there is no awareness of my presence among you. And people will say, well, I see the things you do, but you're basically a rotary club with a cross. That's all you do. But I can tell you, if we as a community would pour ourselves in finding Jesus, then Jesus will pour himself into us. And people will go, man, Jesus is there. So Jesus says, let me give you some motivation. And the motivation is this. We get the best stuff. Let me ask you a question. What if the thing that marks your identity was removed from you? Your spouse? Your education? Your health? Your promotion? Your job? Your prestige? What if that was removed from you? My question to you is this. Would you still thrive? Bob, um, before Parkinson's, he was known as the gentle preacher. He was very gentle. People loved him because his approach to ministry was very caring and loving and gentle. Bob was diagnosed with Parkinson's about 2002, misdiagnosed at first. The symptoms for Bob was not necessarily the shakiness. He doesn't have the shakiness. For him, it was the loss of strength, he became very weak. And being a minister and being able to preach, he was not able to speak. I think the hardest thing for Bob with Parkinson's is losing his strength. And I think as a man, that's really hard for you to lose that strength and to have to have someone help you and to have someone assist you up, to have someone brush your teeth, to have someone feed you at a table, that is really difficult. It was very hard because we've both been very healthy and never did we anticipate going through this. We couldn't relate. When I first heard Bob was diagnosed with Parkinson's, it's very sad, very sad. I don't know if I can explain this, if people can relate to this, but the inside of me cried. And I'm probably crying now, but the inside of me just cried for the longest time. Not outside like I'm doing now, but the inside is so sad. <laughs> I know it. But the inside was crying, and I tried to, if someone would ask me that, and if I, and I'm a very private person and recluse, and I don't care to share things, so when I would mention that, they could not relate, or they would just like snap out of it or whatever. I felt like I was sinking. It was really hard. I felt like I was sinking that you go into despair, kind of like the depths of despair when I looked at my circumstances and situation. And it was at that time I had to make a, a choice, a cognizant choice. I could remain like that, or I could take all the scriptures, all of my belief systems and what I had in my walk with the Lord, and embrace them into my life and focus on Him, on Jesus. And as long as I keep my eyes on Jesus, I can walk on water. But I, I trust in You, Lord. And You will take His life and make it Yours. Cause all I can do is pray. 
statistics of people who leave when another person in a marriage is diagnosed with either a disease or a terminal, whatever it may be, are high. It is very high. And I think it's a decision that you have to make. It isn't easy. It wasn't easy for me. Commitment, I believe, absolutely means hanging in there, not giving up on the person, not walking out. That was never an option or never a thought of mine to leave, Bob. Life is a gift, and what we choose to do with it is up to us. And I choose Jesus. I choose his way. So it amazed so many people when Jesus was dead and rose again was that there was a power unleashed on earth that could resurrect the dead. It's the same life that Adam and Eve had in that garden called the tree of life. That health, that strength, that nothing could decay or kill. And Jesus said, if you return to your first love, right now, right here on earth, here's what I promise you. Revelation 2.7 says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So I have people say to me, now that you don't have musicals, now that you don't have Fully Alive, who are you? I say we are who we've always been. We are a community revealing Jesus because we're determined to focus on Jesus, not forsake him. We've decided that being healthy is more important than being popular. And there's only one thing we want. It is to reveal Jesus. And we have determined that we will, we will pursue our first love. So he who has an ear, hear what the Spirit says. It means this, listen to him who overcomes, to him who will fight the culture, to fight the busyness, to fight all of that, and will come love him with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind, to him, to her who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God, which is our health. So my question this morning is simply this. Who wants to overcome? So we're going to end this way. I'm going to ask you in a moment to respond because so often when Jesus asked for a faith expression, he asked us to do something so that it's not just hidden deep down inside, but there's a covenant that, that, that's, that's displayed. And so I'm going to ask you to do this. I'm going to ask you to respond because I've got to be honest with you. I have, I have reviewed my life in this last week as I've gone through these scriptures and realized that there's parts of my life that are not, that are not seeking him with my whole heart. And I've got to change some things. And so my declaration to you today is this and to God is, I will overcome. And so in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask you and, and, and just whenever you're ready, just to stand. And I want you to say out loud, 
I will overcome. That is your faith statement today, that you will not forsake your first love, but you will this week love him with your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. So whenever you're ready for the just next few moments, would you just stand and say out loud, I will overcome. Okay, I'm going to ask the rest of you to stand. Now, here's the deal. You said it. Now, I've got to live it. God heard it. So, what will you do different this week? What will you change this week? Because the definition of insanity is continuing to do the same thing over and over again and thinking you're going to get different results. Don't be crazy. Instead, decide what you're changing. One thing, just one thing this week, what will you change? And begin that. Now, let me pray a blessing on you. Now, may you from this point on be so aware of the holy presence of God that surrounds you and the joy he takes in you, that he celebrates you and us as community. And we, may we as one now understand how to love him with our whole heart, that he will be our first passion, our first breath, all our energy, and our complete thought. And may we discover the great joy of being with him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. God bless you. Have a great week.